When you think of ways to slow down climate change, what pops into your mind? Reduce, reuse, recycle. These are things that we, as humans, can actively do to decrease our impact on Earth's climate. We're not alone in the fight against climate change, though. Plants play an important role just by being, well, plants. This week on Radio Bio, Dr. Silver from UC Berkeley tells us about how plants, together with soil microorganisms, help capture carbon from the atmosphere and store it in the ground, and what we can do to help. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Lily Pennington. And I am Sananta Pertiwi. Today we're chatting with Dr. Wendy Silver, a researcher at University of California, Berkeley. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Silver. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so can you start off by telling us who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Wendy Silver. I am an ecosystem ecologist and a biogeochemist at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. So how did you get started in the field of ecosystem ecology and biogeochemistry? Well, it's an interesting kind of history. Um, in college, I started out as a theater arts major, so it's pretty far from what I'm doing now, but was an avid backpacker and loved to go outside. And partway through my college career, I, I wondered if it would be possible to get an undergraduate degree in backpacking. <laughs> um, and the closest I could find was doing environmental science classes and ecology classes, which took me outside, and pretty soon I got hooked. And the next thing you know, I was doing ecology, and that led to trying to understand how things worked, and that's how I ended up with biogeochemistry. So, okay, you're an ecologist and a biogeochemist, so what is biogeochemistry? Good question. Um, biogeochemistry is a field for somebody who can't make up their mind. Um, it's a little bit of biology, geology, and chemistry. So I get to do all of those things uh, at the same time. And there's many different flavors of biogeochemistry. There are biogeochemists that are bio with a big B that really focus on the biology of ecosystems and the environment. And then similarly, there are those who are primarily geologists or primarily chemists, some of those being atmospheric chemists. I would say I'm a biogeochemist with a capital B. Uh, I came into it from the biology and ecology side. So what sorts of questions are you asking with your research? Well, we ask a really wide range of research questions. Most of the questions that we ask focus on some aspect of climate change. And then over the last decade or so, we've been spending a lot of our effort trying to understand how we can slow climate change, both by slowing emissions of greenhouse gas emissions from natural and working lands. Hang on, natural and working lands? What's the difference? Natural lands are lands that are left on their own, are not cultivated, and are not heavily managed. For instance, national parks are natural lands. Working lands are lands that are managed and used for some purpose, typically for agriculture or ranging. Examples include farmlands, rangelands, pastures, things like that. It's land that we make work for us. But also how we could get carbon out of the atmosphere and into soils through managing ecosystems. So why do we have to do that? Why do we have to take carbon out of the air and into the soils? <laughs> so we have to do that because 
carbon dioxide concentrations and other greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and methane are increasing in the atmosphere due to human activity. Dr. Silver mentions carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. These are examples of greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases are a hot topic right now. They are what's driving climate change. A greenhouse gas is a gas that absorbs heat from the earth and radiates it back down, rather than letting that heat escape from the atmosphere, resulting in warmer temperatures over time. We release these gases into the atmosphere when we burn fossil fuels. So, to combat climate change, Dr. Silver is saying we not only need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but also to figure out a way to suck them out of the atmosphere. Dr. Silver's research into carbon sequestration focuses on carbon dioxide due to its role in photosynthesis. And we used to think that just slowing the rate of emissions would slow the rate of climate change. Unfortunately, now there's so much carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that slowing emissions isn't going to solve the problem. We're still going to see an increase in warming for probably hundreds to thousands of years unless we can figure out a way to get some of these gases out of the atmosphere. Now the really cool side of this is that plants have perfected a technique over millions of years of how to remove carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Plants are really good at something called photosynthesis. That's how they make their living. They take CO2 uh, out of the atmosphere and they use nutrients from the soil and water from the soil and they make their plant tissues. Plants, by taking that CO2 out of the atmosphere to, to turn it into plant carbon, to the things that they're made out of, are essentially drawing down that atmospheric CO2 concentration. So if we can figure out ways to increase the rate at which they draw down CO2 out of the atmosphere, uh, we'll be removing it, helping to slow climate change, if at the same time we do reduce emissions. So uh, you're saying like if we can figure out a way to have plants like increase their rates of photosynthesis and of taking in carbon, but this sounds like we're modifying plants. Like are we building plants that are going to be better at this? Well, so... The reality is, is that we're probably not going to increase the rate of photosynthesis by any given plant. Um, people have thought about trying to build super plants, genetically modify plants to make them better at photosynthesis. But again, photosynthesis is something that's been developed. Think of it as a technology over millions of years. It's really been perfected. And nobody yet has been able to really significantly increase the rate of photosynthesis and have it be successful. Photosynthesis isn't the only thing that controls the rate of plant growth. If we can increase the water availability or the nutrient availability, like we do in agriculture, right? We irrigate and we fertilize, and that makes the plants grow better. So if we can figure out ways to make plants grow better, maybe not change the rate of photosynthesis, but change the rate of growth, then we could pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So are you looking at different types of plants or different types of landscapes, or is there a specific landscape that you're looking at? Because you said you studied rangeland and also forests. and Yeah, so we're looking at all the different kinds of landscapes that we can right now to try to figure out where, where there's potential to increase the rate of carbon capture out of the atmosphere by plants. We focus on rangelands. Those are grazing lands, grasslands, pastures. Those are all rangelands. The reason we're focusing on those ecosystems is because rangelands tend to occur in places where there's more water loss from an ecosystem through things like evaporation, 
than water input through rainfall. And when plants live under those conditions, they learn over evolutionary time to put a lot of their energy into roots below ground. And so, so grasslands, healthy grasslands, are grasslands that have high root biomass. A lot of the energy and the, the carbon that they're pulling out of the atmosphere goes into roots in, in order for them to search for water. And anytime you put carbon in the soil, there's a higher probability that it's going to be captured by the soil, either by the little soil aggregates or the clods that form in soil that could capture that carbon, or through chemical reactions in the soil, than if you were to just dump it on the surface. So having plants grow and inject that carbon into the soil is a good way to get that carbon stored, and grasslands are particularly good at it, so they're good places to, to work. Another reason why we focus on grasslands is because grasslands have been managed for a very long time. It's the number one form of land use globally is managing grasslands. So yeah, so we can think of soils in grasslands as like a bathtub that would be half full. It's lost some of its native carbon, which means that it has the potential to gain new carbon if we can figure out ways to get that carbon into the soil. So when we're talking about capturing carbon and then how it moves through the plant into the soil, um, can you describe as in what form is that? How can we think of it as it moves? Oh, sure. So it starts in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So let's just start there. Carbon dioxide is a natural part of our atmosphere. Um, it's actually a trace gas, so that means that it's not one of the most important gases from a quantity perspective, but we care about it from climate change because it's good at absorbing heat. So it's sitting in the atmosphere. We have plants on land, and we have uh, organisms in the oceans that use CO2, carbon dioxide, as an important resource for photosynthesis. So they absorb that through their tissues, generally through their leaves. And inside the plant, that CO2 gets converted to carbon. So CO2 is carbon dioxide. In the plant, they take that carbon dioxide and convert it to carbon along with nutrients. It becomes plant parts like stems and leaves and flowers and, and fruits. They take that oxygen and they respire it, just like we breathe out CO2. Plants breathe out oxygen. And also, they produce some water in the process. So, so that CO2 comes in, it gets converted within the plant, some of it becomes plant carbon. Now, not all of the CO2 that comes in the plant ends up as plant carbon. Some of that CO2 gets released, they also respire CO2. So about 50% of the CO2 that comes in will go back out as respiration, and 50% will be converted in the plant to plant carbon. Let's think of this as the above ground part of the carbon cycle. The carbon was in the air as carbon dioxide, and now it is in the plant as plant tissues. Now it's in the plant. So you've got a stem or a leaf or a root or a fruit or a flower, and at some point that plant is going to drop that tissue, or the whole plant is going to die. And when that happens, that material gets deposited on the soil surface or in the soil. So now we're in carbon that's called organic material and that carbon is a piece of the organic material. Organic material also has nutrients and water, and it's deposited on the soil and it becomes food for microorganisms, bacteria and fungi and other microorganisms in soils that use that organic material to, to mine or harvest the carbon out of it. They use the carbon for energy, 
And so some of the carbon that they eat, they respire back as CO2, just like we do. Some of that carbon actually goes in to build their bodies and becomes microbial organic matter. And when those microbes die, that microbial organic matter gets returned to the soil or gets released into the soil for other microbes to use, or it may get trapped in the soil inside one of those little aggregates or clods like you see in your garden. It could chemically react with the mineral surfaces in soils, the ground up rock pieces, or with even other organic molecules in soils. And when it does that, it gets trapped in there and it could stick around anywhere from a few weeks to thousands of years. So now we know how carbon gets into the soil after being carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. When carbon is stored in the soil, it is known as carbon sequestration. This can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Microbes in the soil use organic carbon and respire carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. So we wondered, how can we keep carbon in the soil? So microbial activity in the soil is something that we want happening, but at the same time, are we... Do we need to constrain it or limit it, or yeah, what this, do we need to do? What do we need to do? <laughs> That's a really good question, right? <laughs> Scientists really need to work on this. We need all of our wonderful undergraduate students and graduate students to also work on this. We want everybody to be thinking about these problems to try to come up with new solutions. What my lab's been working on for several years now is to figure out ways that we can enhance the organic matter in soils in a way that's that's harder for the microbes to break down. They can still access it, they can still break it down, but we slow them down considerably. And the way that we've been doing that, which is gonna sound kind of strange, because it doesn't sound very scientific, but actually it, it really is. It's biogeochemistry in, in a wonderful, pure sense, is to compost organic waste, food waste, green waste, agricultural waste, and Professor Rebecca Riles here at UC Percet is working on human waste. And so if we could compost that material, which basically is putting it in a big pile and allowing the microbes to take it as far as they can, but cre creating it a chemical environment where they can't take it too far. In other words, they're not breaking it all down to CO2 or to methane. They're just breaking it down a little bit, and they're, they're converting it into a organic matter, composite, chemical composition, or physical feature with physical features that are just hard for microbes to break down. And so it slows everything down. And anybody who's had a garden knows that if you put compost out on your garden, your garden will hold more water, the plants will grow better, and, and it'll stay that way for quite a while. And what we're finding is when we put compost out onto rangelands, the grasses grow much better, they pull more CO2 out of the atmosphere, they stick that carbon into the soil, and the carbon accumulates. We're still allowing the microbes to do their work, but they're just being slowed down. And so they're releasing less CO2 to the atmosphere as they would if they were breaking the material down completely. And how, how does that work? I, maybe I'm not like familiar with composting, but it seems to me if you spread out compost on a rangeland, it would be mushy and the cows are like sinking, you know, oh. <laughs> they can't like walk across the so, land. <laughs> so it depends on the compost you're using. Our compost is not mushy. Commercial grade compost is, is kind of fluffy. And we apply a very small amount, about a quarter inch of compost. And it, of course, it's not perfectly evenly distributed. It gets distributed from the back of a truck. It's not super moist. And when you're done with it, just looks like there's like a, a, a light dotting of darkness on the, the soil. 
and that compost will eventually work its way into soil and it seems to stick around for quite a long time. As it slowly breaks down, it slowly releases nutrients to the plants, so it's like a slow-release fertilizer, and the plants really benefit from that. We've now um, shown that even five years after a single application of compost, that plant growth in the sites that receive compost is still higher than in the control sites that didn't receive compost. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. The farmers and the ranchers, they love this, right? It's a it's a one-time investment in compost and they're getting many years of return from that. But compost actually has a a technical definition and is regulated by the state of California. So here in California, our compost has to meet uh, our commercial compost has to meet a set of standards that show that it it's actually truly composted. One of the criteria is that it has to have reached temperature of 120 degrees for a certain amount of time, which shows that the microbial activities have reached such a high point that they've removed the, the undesirable microbes and pests and seeds uh, from that compost pile. So that makes compost safe to add to almost any landscape. I think I know nothing about compost. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> like yeah. it, you, it goes, it gets really hot. Wow. And so compost can be used in like agriculture, but it's like not. No, actually, that's the funny thing. How did we figure out to use compost? Well, because farmers and ranchers were already using it. Oh. They wanted us to test it because they thought this was a really good idea, and they were right. They'd been using it, but not because they were interested in sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, drawing carbon out of the atmosphere, they were interested in using it because it's a really good form of fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And it's, especially if you make it yourself, if they have waste products that they would have had to have had hauled away from their farms or ranches, they can compost that material and apply it to their own lands. And so they're producing the fertilizer themselves. A lot of the producers I know that use compost are instead of having to purchase the materials that they need for composting, folks are paying to dump their excess livestock manure or excess agricultural products on their farms where they make the compost themselves. So, so far, until everybody figures out what a wonderful idea this is, it's been pretty cost-effective for a lot of these producers. How do we scale it up in terms of um, to be able to have that impact that we are aiming for? Yeah, that's a really good question. How do you scale this up? Well, one way in which we can scale it up, and I think uh, CalRecycle, which is the organization that's responsible for recycling in the state of California, is trying to manage this, is to try to capture as much of the organic waste stream as possible before it goes to landfills or slurry ponds. And that has multiple benefits we're running out of space to make new landfills. And so as much as we can reduce the amount of material that are faded for landfills, the better we'll be in limiting the need to establish new landfills on more prime real estate. Nobody really likes to live next to a landfill. Mm-hmm. Landfills are really big sources of greenhouse gas. And that greenhouse gases that are coming out of the landfills come from the organic waste primarily that's being dumped in there. So the state, through the Cal Recycle Agency, really wants to capture as much of that organic waste as possible. And what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to compost it, right? That's a really great 
use for that organic waste, especially because now we know it's a valuable agricultural resource and has the potential to sequester carbon. So many uh, municipalities are uh, starting curbside composting in cities, and there are waste capture approaches in rural areas of the state, and that organic material is going to be going into compost that then will be available for people to land apply and help contribute to California's climate change mitigation plans. And so how do we scale down? What if I want to sequester a ton of carbon in my backyard? Yeah, (laughs) what would you do? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to think about everything that you throw out. And anything that was once alive, paper, food waste, garden clippings, grass clippings from your yard, any of that can be composted. And ideally, you would find a commercial composting facility because they're going to have the means to actually compost it well so that it's safe. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you do have a, a local commercial composting facility and there are more and more opening up all the time now, take it to them, let them make the compost, and then usually, at least in, in our city, in the city of Berkeley, we can go to that composting facility and get the compost for free. So we go to comp- go get it for free, and I put it on my garden where I grow lots of vegetables in my carport of <laughs> in, in uh, the city of Berkeley, and it makes wonderful material and soil for growing vegetables. And at the same time, I'm probably sequestering carbon. So it sounds like it's twofold in a way. Compost is fertilizer for the plants, but at the same time, we're giving long-lasting food to the microbes. Yeah. Is that yeah, it's, what it's we're doing? <laughs> one of the things that we know that we're doing is we're probably increasing the sustainability and productivity of ecosystems through this activity. Anytime you increase the organic matter content of soils, you're increasing the fertility, you're increasing the water holding capacity, and you're decreasing the rate of erosion, the chances of losing soil through runoff or other kinds of activities or other kinds of climate uh, events like dust events. Organic matter helps make soils stick together, so it helps protect and conserve soils. So by adding compost to soils, we're increasing the organic matter content of soils. So all of those things are are happening. It's increasing productivity and sustainability. And so would you say that like your compost work is the main aspect of your research or what are some other ways that you're looking at carbon sequestration? One of the projects that we're working on is in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta of California. The state of California is interested in determining whether or not they can help meet their uh, climate change mitigation goals by creating wetlands that could sequester carbon. So large areas of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta have been drained for agriculture, and that carbon-rich soils that have accumulated in those wetlands is really, really rich um, in nutrients and great soil to do farming in. But in some cases, in some areas of the delta, draining the water has led to land subsidence. And mostly that land subsidence is happening because the microbial activity is accelerating at such a fast rate once we aerate those soils, right? Once we create an environment where the microbes can really do their work, they eat that organic matter and respire the CO2 so quickly and so much that over the course of several years, we see the land level drop. So in some areas of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, 
the land is now below sea level, and that's putting pressures on the levees that's keeping the water out from this the rivers and from sea level rise. And so one of the things to do to relieve the pressures on the levees would be to take the levees down and allow wetlands to reestablish. And as you do that, carbon begins to accumulate because the wetland plants can be very productive. They produce carbon that then sinks. The lower parts of the wetlands that are underwater can become very anaerobic, meaning that they lack oxygen. And microbes um, are not as good at decomposing carbon in the absence of oxygen as they are when there's oxygen present. And so that's how carbon accumulates in those wetlands. So we basically have to be mindful of not only what we can capture and hold, but also what we're releasing. Yeah, absolutely. In order to really solve the climate change problem, we absolutely have to do both. We have to reduce emissions and we have to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. We can no longer depend on just one to solve the problem. We have to do both. For the undergrad listeners out there, there's so many. This is a wide open area where any crazy idea that you have is worth pursuing. Um, Who would have thought that compost was going to be something that could have such a big impact on our climate or other agricultural activities that people already know how to do? So there's tons of potential out there for people to come up with good ideas and test them, see see if they work. Well, thank you very much for being here with us today. Sure, my pleasure. This episode was produced by Yumari Vasquez and edited by Yumari Vasquez. The interviewers were Sinenta Pratiwi and Lily Pennington. Episode artwork was created by Jeffrey Lauder. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.